so merciful and gracious. We are so undeserving. And yet, because of your grace, you pour out your love and your compassion and your mercy. You pour out righteousness and love and the multitude of your promises that would lead us into an abundant life. I pray, Father, that you would hide this servant behind the shadow of the cross, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up, that the Holy Spirit would move powerfully in the hearts and minds of each of us here, not only to convict us of sin, but to guide us into truth and to encourage us in our walk of grace. We ask your blessing and thank you, Father, for this time. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you tonight numerous t uh, portions of scripture. I want to share with you about um, three individuals, Jackie, Steve, and Cassie. But as we focus on them, there, it's not to, to look at them, but it's to draw a principle that can be supported by scripture and most importantly then applied to our lives. We live in a culture that even advertises that image is everything. And we need to be aware that regardless of how distant that message may be to you personally or to me personally, it is impacting you and those around you. Jackie was a person, was my classmate, who thought that image was everything. You see, it's not a new message. It's maybe just a more open message. But image was everything. So when a new style came out, Jackie was the first to try it. Didn't matter how, you know, odd it may have looked, she was there pushing the envelope. Sometimes she pushed it so far she was down at the principal's office and sometimes being sent home to get a change. But Jackie just wasn't concerned about an image that was uh, clothing. She had an image that was more of a reputation. She wanted to be on the cutting edge of everything, not just fashion. It was music, it was relationships, etc. I still remember the Monday after coming home from a week in San Diego at the beach and starting my, resuming my paper route that I had to get up at 5, 5.15 in the morning to deliver papers. Now, at 5.15 in the morning in Phoenix in the summertime, it's light. It's not hot and bright sun, but there's enough light. And as I was nearing the end of my paper out, well, in fact, all during the time on my paper out, there was a startling, significant difference about that morning than other mornings. Every corner, it seemed, and every few minutes, there was a police car that passed by me. I didn't understand what was going on. I was just focused on getting my papers delivered. Well, as I neared the end of my route, I noticed there was an increase in the number of cars. In fact, there were parked there, and they were having meetings there. 
And so I decided to wander over to one of the policemen on the peripheral to find out, to satisfy my curiosity. I said, what's going on? Well, he was just as interested in talking to me as I was talking to him, because he saw that I was delivering papers. And so he told me that someone had been shot to death right over here the night before. Did I know anything about it? Did I see anything? And I told him I'd been out of town and just returned. Well, it was a couple of weeks later. It was in the month of August. It was a couple of weeks later that we started school. And I found out, well, I didn't even have to wait to then, but I found out uh, in the paper that it was my classmate, Jackie. We were starting high school, well, most of us. Jackie never made it to high school. Now, for every one Jackie, there's probably a hundred that live with the consciousness that images everything but don't, and don't end up like Jackie. But it doesn't deny the fact that when we preoccupy ourselves with image, we'll miss so much that God has for us. Image is everything. You know, I came across an interesting study, and you might think it's kind of odd for a moment, but bear with me, that uh, somebody did because he wanted to uh, do a study on population and living in confined quarters. But I can draw a parallel, although it was, um, you know, the study was done with mice. Uh, I'm not trying to make a, a complete uh, parallel across all lines. But there was something interesting that happened. He designed a cage to hold 160 mice and provided everything possible that those mice would need to live. All the food, all the water, the right temperature, not hot like the dorms and stuff like that. Everything was, was opportune. And so what happened was these mice continued to um, expand. And so this living quarters that was designed for 160 reached its peak about two and a half years later of 2,200 mice. And so the scientists were very interested to see what was going on. What happened to those mice? One of the things that happened, and this is why I am so concerned about teens, about youth, and about issues of the youth, is when those young mice did not have a place to go, did not have a structure to move into, a, perhaps a job, so to speak, in mice world, whatever they do there, they became preoccupied with themselves. And it's really interesting that the observations that the scientists made uh, went something like this. It says, the young grew to be only self-indulgent. They ate, they drank, they slept, they groomed themselves, but they showed no, no normal aggression. And most noteworthy, they failed to reproduce. I sat here yesterday afternoon or yesterday morning with you in the team forum, and I looked at a statistic about the membership in the Apostolic Christian Church and how it has plateaued and gone maybe up and down a little bit, but mostly fairly level over the last years. Can it be said that we as youth, and I don't speak simply to the teens and the young people here, I look at my generation because it started at my generation and I say, have we become so conscious of image the style of clothes we wear, the size of the house, the comforts that we have, the latest furniture, uh, the, the best comforts, that we have forgotten what our purpose is 
on earth. The young kids sang about it this morning, that we have to give it away. You sang about it. It's grace alone. And yet when we become preoccupied with ourselves and self-absorbed, there will be no reproduction. It has been said of churches, there are three kinds of churches. There's the dying church, and they can't save the ones that come from themselves. There is the static church that simply save those that come, the membership, the kids of, the, of families. And then there's the living church that reaches out beyond its own family, beyond its own you know, organization, and into the culture and impacts the culture in a positive way. That's a living church. I don't know if we're there yet as an apostolic Christian church, but I can guarantee you one thing. If every one of you take to heart the message that grace has appeared and applies it in your life in a way of devoted obedience to God's word, our church and any church will grow. But most importantly, it will be the church of the living God, who someday you and I will stand before and give an account of the grace and what we've done with it, whether we've used it or abused it, or neglected it and rejected it. <clears throat> image is everything. How does image influence us in our society? Most often, it's displayed in a, an appealing package, and we gravitate towards that. But another way that image is pushed down upon us and not only image, but anything <clears throat> is by those around us. Peer pressure. Another way it's called is group numbing. And I really think that this has taken place. Back in 1968, in the month of March, before most of you were even born, an incident happened in Vietnam. And it was called My Lai. But do you know what the interesting thing is? Not that a person was found guilty, that they killed innocent children as, as, and, and, and women and old people and babies, as tragic and, and, uh, a situation as that is. But no one, no one reported the incident for over a year. And there was at least 500 people that, that uh, those, you know, after reflection, have come to say there was, there was 200 on the mission, and it says within a matter of a few days, at least 500 people knew about it, but nobody talked about it. And they said, the psychologists that they evaluated, they called it group numbing. I think it's happening in our culture today. We go with the flow. We're unwilling to stand out and be different. Or, if we want to be different, we want to be different in a radical way that's really um, self-aggrandizement. Lifting oneself up so that I'm noticed, I get the attention, instead of lifting up Jesus Christ. Are we being numbed as a group? You know, it's my prayer. And I'm going to talk about uh, Joshua a little bit here. But I'm convinced there's at least one Joshua here tonight. And not because you are, your birth name is Joshua, but because you really want to be a Joshua, as we find in Scripture. I want to tell you about the second person. His name is Steve. I didn't have the time when we were on tour with Youth Choir to, to actually find Steve's name 
on the granite memorial of the Vietnam veterans there, or those that died in action, or are missing in action. But Steve epitomizes a heart that is zealous for a cause and a purpose, who is totally committed to what he's called to. And the reason why I mention Steve is because he was my contemporary. I was a few months away from being drafted to go overseas and be in Vietnam when they stopped the draft and started to wind down the war. And so I'm sensitive to that era. And as I was reading a, uh, um, a summary about the, uh, a Company C that had endured Vietnam, there was this time when I was reading about this young man, Steve, and the rest of his platoon. They were out at night, and they encountered the enemy. And they were outnumbered a hundred to one. And they were afraid. And they found a mortar hole, and the seven of those guys, or eight of them, jumped in this hole. It was big enough for all of them. And they, the, the radio man got on the radio and tried to whisper, come, help us. We're trapped. We're surrounded. The enemy's coming. Apparently, a Viet Cong soldier overheard those whispers. Thinking it was one of his buddies, he started walking over towards the noise, lighting a cigarette as he came. They were petrified. Finally, one of them stood up with a pistol and shot him as he was in feet of the, or the mortar hole. But before he died, he pulled a grenade, loosed the pin, and dropped it in the hole. And there the grenade lay in the middle of eight soldiers. Steve without thinking for a moment, but because he was trained, he jumped on that grenade and covered it, and it blew up. Tore away his old stomach and most of his chest. And as he lay there, he was crying out, oh God, it hurts, it hurts. The only thing that the other seven guys could do in that moment, there was nothing they could do to help him, but they had to take hand, their hands and force his jaw shut and hold their hands over his mouth so he, would, they wouldn't, he wouldn't give away their position to the other enemy that was coming. Steve heaved a couple of times, took a breath, and died. What is it about Steve that you see in your life? Is there that level of commitment if you're a Christian? If you're not a Christian, born again because of the grace of God, what are you living for? Because if you don't have something to live for, there's no use in dying. And if you're not willing to die for something, there's no use in living. Let's turn to what Joshua, chapter 
33 of Exodus. And as you were singing up there tonight, I was looking into your faces. And my heart was burdened because I was wondering, where are you? Where are you if you stood before God tonight? Would you hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or would you hear, depart from me, I never knew you? Or would you hear, you've been lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth? Joshua was a young man. He was a soldier. He was a leader. And he was trained, and he was being trained by Moses. But most importantly, he recognized that Moses wasn't the man to look to. There was a God, an all-seeing and all-knowing, all-powerful God behind the man Moses. And so, as, as Moses went up into the mount and brought down the Ten Commandments, and in the interim, Aaron had, had been convinced by the people because they became impatient. Where is God? And they built the golden calf. And God says, because of that, judgment will come upon you. There came a time when the tabernacle then was removed out of the presence of the camp and set outside. And listen to what the words say in uh, verse 7, beginning with verse 7. And Moses took the tabernacle, and this is chapter 33 of Exodus. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that every one which sought the Lord went out into the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. Now we're here at Eastern Camp. We're in new settings. We're in a much nicer place than the tabernacle that Moses was talking about. But notice what was important. Those that wanted to come and to seek the Lord, they went into the tabernacle of the congregation. How many of you are in here physically, but your mind is a thousand miles away? You're not in the tabernacle of the Lord, and you're not seeking him. And you will never find him because your heart is far from him. That's what the prophet said. Seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. Let's go on, verse eight. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and, and the Lord spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaks unto his friend. And he turned again unto the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the temple. We can go on further and read about grace in this chapter. And we can read about grace in menses that I can give you tonight. But notice the difference here. We had Moses going out to worship. Moses meeting God as friend to friend and communing with him. That is available to all of the congregation. But they elected to stay at their tent door and worship God from a distance. 
it's a sad reflection upon an individual when they choose to worship God from a distance. To me, it says very clearly, your God is too small. And if you are here tonight and have yet to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, maybe it's questions that you have, maybe it's doubts that you have, your God is too small. If you're unwilling to be like Joshua, to get in there and to stay in the tabernacle because you are communing with God, and we could go on and read in the next chapter and see how that Moses, when he would go to the tabernacle, he came back to speak to the people. And because of that face-to-face -face communion with God, his face radiated. And my brothers and sisters and friends, if we understand that principle that when we are in line with God and we're worshiping Him, and He is a friend, not simply a buddy, but a friend who is willing and did die, and we understand that, and our view of God is to be ready to ultimate sacrifice, you will also be ready to make that sacrifice. And that's the hard one. That's the one. That was the lesson today about personal discipline, about dying daily. But I can tell friends and my brothers and sisters, when your view of God is big, so is your view of grace. So is your confident confidence in Him and not your needs. Image is everything. When I was a teacher, I was very concerned about image. And I developed some of them on the basketball court. But if any of you were out there watching the married singles today, you would see that I had long lost any skills on the basketball court. What about your looks? I remember reading about um, a young lady, beautiful lady, uh, a model and had won some of those, you know, beauty pads. She was living, um, uh, she married handsome husband, the dream of her life, and uh, they were living in Alaska because uh, his job, he had a fan job, took him up there. Living in Alaska, driving um, home alone, and a car crossed the, uh, the center line, hit her head on, it was removed, but she was permanently figured and scarred. Do you know what that boat did? after he was allowed to see her without bandages he walked in laid the ring on the bed and said I'm through his image everything think about it today to you about Jackie because you see it, it keeps me sober because I reflect back I went to kindergarten grade with Jackie and sometimes we, we need to be realists and think about the, the peers that we're associating with or have associated with. I could tell you about Larry, I could tell John, I could tell you about 30 others from class. You know, it's, it's really amazing to me, and I don't think that my class is unique. Many are dead, some are in prison, and it's interesting to see how when they choose to pursue life apart from God, the statistics don't bear out that it Let me read a couple of verses in 1 Timothy. Timothy was a young man also. Maybe he was a teenager when he first heard the word. And he 
received that word. He received grace as a gift. And then Paul starts to say about him, and, and I want you to understand too about this aspect of grace. And Paul wrote about it, he thought about it, his, uh, it was something that consumed his thinking and his teaching. And he says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. A thankfulness for a job to do for the kingdom of God. I want you to think about that. There are so many jobs that need to be fulfilled. And the biggest one is of you being a light. And look at what else uh, Paul says about this. He says about uh, what Christ did in him. He says, speaking of himself, he says, I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy or grace because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world for, <clears throat> to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul was writing, I was the chief among sinners. And he didn't say that because he was feeling proud about it. But he said, God rescued me so that I could be an example to those that would come after. So that they would see in my life God's grace evident. Not for a moment would he say, go out and sow your wild oats, live the wildlife, so that you rack up a long list, a black list, a list that will scar you for life, and so that you can come back and say, oh, God's grace was great. That's not what he's implying. He's, but he is saying that no matter how far you've gone, you haven't gone too far. And if you're hearing that, that you've gone too far, that's a message right out of hell. But he's also saying that because of grace, your life should be a walking display of love, of mercy, of purity, of holiness, of compassion, every fruit of the Spirit. Are you shortchanging grace and God who gave everything for you? Well, maybe I should ask myself that too, because I'm not anywhere different than you. And what I say to you applies first and doubly to me. Cassie is your peer and not mine. And I shared a little bit about her in my 18-year-old class this morning. Her life ended on April 20th, 1999 in a library because she said she loved God. I would challenge you to read the book, She Said Yes. It gives you an insight of the, the struggles that a teenager goes through. Not all of you would experience the same, but again, I think she was a mark, like Paul was, a display of the grace of God. 
But the question is asked, how was she ready in a moment to say yes? And I ask myself the question, and I ask you to consider the question, given the same circumstances, would you be ready to say yes? It goes back to the principle of not dying a martyr's death, but dying daily. Let me read what her pastor, her youth pastor said. And I think he was absolutely correct in this observation. Cassie struggled like everyone else struggles, but she knew what she had to do to let Christ live in her. It's called dying to yourself. And I might add, dying to the pursuit of self-absorption comforts, of image as everything. Dying to yourself, and it has to be done daily. It means learning to break out of the selfish life. It's not a negative thing, but a way of freeing yourself to live life more fully. Satan would have you think otherwise. Satan would convince you that to die daily has no reward, no significant consequence in heaven's economy. And that's just untrue. But it is dying. The world looks at Cassie's yes of April 20th. But we need to look at her daily yes. She said day after day, month after month, before giving that final answer. A few weeks later, this is the mother writing, Dave and I, her pastor, were talking about Cassie, and he explained what he meant by dying to oneself. It's the same point Jesus was trying to make when he said that he who saves his life will lose it, but he who gives up his life will find it. Long before she died, Cassie had decided that instead of looking out for herself, instead of trying to get things to work her way and wondering what life had to offer her, she was going to see what she could make of it. It's not a question of doing great deeds, but of being selfless in the small things. Cassie used to come with us to a ministry for crack addicts downtown. We'd eat with the guys and play basketball or just hang out with them. That's what it's all about. Saying hi to someone or shaking their hand when you'd rather look the other way. Reaching out and being willing to make sacrifices for something bigger than your own happiness and comfort. You, if you want to be numbered among the saints, to have a glorious entrance into heaven, will have to start thinking about someone other than yourself. And so will I. The night that Cassie was killed, she was planning to go to a Bible study. And they had been using a book. And she had prepared, and she had highlighted certain things in the book about what was significant to her. Let me read those to you. Seek until you find, and don't give up. Pray to, even if you think you don't believe, because God hears even the unbeliever as she groans. God will help you through. Don't give up, and above all, avoid the temptations that distract you from what you know you really long for. If you do fall, 
stand up and get back on track. Like anyone else, Martin Luther King must have been afraid of dying, yet he radiated a deep calm and peace. Here was a man with no doubts as to his mission and no crippling fears about the cost of carrying it out. No man, King said, no man is free if he fears death. He told this to a crowd of civil rights uh, rally in 1963. But the minute you conquer the fear of death, at that moment, you are free. I submit to you that if a man hasn't discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. Are you willing to make the ultimate? Are you willing to die daily? That's where the measurement is. And until we start being faithful in our daily dying, God says, I really can't use you to your full potential in my kingdom. Is your God too small? Do you view the sacrifice of dying daily as just a sacrifice? As suffering? You will know that you have matured and walked with God when that moment happens and God says to you and it registers in your mind that it's not a sacrifice, it's a privilege. And when sacrifice becomes privilege, when suffering becomes a privilege, God has wonders awaiting for you that you cannot humanly comprehend because he's waiting for you to give it to you to experience it. I had to think of how appropriate it was when uh, Brother Paul Weingartner said in our teachers meeting about grace. Do we really understand and utilize grace like we should? He made this analogy. Wouldn't it be nice if every month God sent us a statement on account that says, like the electric company does, and says you've used 906 kilowatts of energy. And God would say to us, you've used 8, 18, 80. And we think, then we measure that number of what we've used and how we've lived against an infinite God and his grace. And we say, where am I missing it? Where's the resistance? And then another brother said, if you want to increase the amount of energy that flows through a wire, you can increase the capacity of the wire or you can re reduce the resistance in the wire. Sin is the resistance in the wire of God's grace to you and I. I pray that your God isn't too small. And that when you leave this place, you don't stop studying about the grace of God, but you continue to think about it and reflect upon it. And one of the, the, the biggest things that you will have to die to is the fact <clears throat> that you need to be alone. Because many of you don't do that. Many of you 
confess that you're not reading the Bible and taking that time alone. And that's not listening to Christian CDs or tapes or other sermons. It's getting into the Word and studying it and using a, a dictionary and a concordance and a reference and really putting energy in it. Time alone so that you're not self-absorbed and you're like those little mice running around in mice world not reproducing. And how will the peer pressure influence you? Will it numb you? Or will you stand out like a bright light so that when the day comes and people are struggling around you, you will have left them a testimony. You will be a display of God's grace that they will come, like the prophet said of old, and they will grab the coattail of him that is a Jew, not because he's a Jew, but because God is with him. And when grace is evident in your life, they will see God in your life, and they will ask of the hope that lies within you. <clears throat> and will you be willing to give your utmost for his highest? Because when you view him as the highest, you're more than willing to give your utmost. I'd like to call the youth choir forward to sing that number in closing. <clears throat>